Welcome to Rocking Our Prayers. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans, and with me today in Barcelona is Libertad Gonzalez, Associate Professor of Economics at the Barcelona School of Economics. Libertad, welcome. Hi, Alice. Thank you very much for having me. So I would like to discuss some of your fabulous papers on paternity leave, on sharing care work, on gender-based violence. You've written so many things. So let's discuss a couple of papers, starting with radical transformation in Spain because of this paternity leave. Tell me, tell me everything. Okay. So I have spent quite a lot of time thinking about the effects of paternity leave in Spain. So Spain... Uh, Back when I had my first child, 2007, there was no such thing as paternity leave. So moms had four months of fully paid maternity leave, but dads typically could take two days of leave um, from, their, from their work, and that's it. As of today, moms and dads in Spain have about the exact same rights in, ter in terms of maternity and paternity leave. Moms have four months fully paid, dads have four months fully paid. And this is the result of uh, a number of extensions, starting with two weeks in 2007, and then several later extensions until now, when it's 16 weeks men, 16 weeks women. So in my research with my co-authors, we, uh, we have studied the effects that these reforms have had in Spanish households, in, you know, in the in the dimensions that you would expect, for example, that paternity leave contribute to uh, men and women sharing childcare uh, more equally, but then also in a range of other dimensions, perhaps less obvious, such as um, fertility rates, for example. Ah, yes, yes, this is the, the counterintuitive finding, right. So let's start off with the behavior of the couples. How does the behavior of the couples change and how do you know that? So uh, the first thing that we know is that uh, from day one, fathers most fathers did make use of the new paternity leave. So yes, and this is unusual and specific to Spain. 60% of men uptake uh, paternity yes, leave. Yes, at least 60%. Yes, yes. So, uh, I mean, what's crucial about this is that paternity leave in Spain was... Um, so what's crucial is that paternity leave was um, reserved exclusively for dads, so it yes. wasn't taking away time from the mothers. Yes. It wasn't parental leave that could be shared, because mm. what we knew from previous family policies in Spain is when you make it neutral, such that... Either parent can use it, only moms use it. So yes, the really important thing is paid and non-transferable. Exactly. It was, uh, it's like use it or lose exactly, it, right? Yes, it's non-transferable and fully paid. And initially, it was just two weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, most dads uh, took it and they spent those two weeks at home at the very beginning, right after having a child. Well, before, it was zero days. Uh, so the first thing that we found is high take-up. And the second thing that we found was that actually... Even if it was just two weeks, they did seem to have persistent effects in terms of how, how involved fathers were with uh, housework and childcare, way beyond those two weeks. So we looked at time use survey data in Spain three years after the introduction of the two weeks of paternity leave, and we saw that dads who were eligible for the two weeks were spending like half an hour more per day on uh, childcare and housework compared with fathers who had a child, you know, right before the introduction of paternity leave. So some persistent effects there. We also found small but uh, detectable effects on mothers' uh, work hours. So mothers worked, were more likely to work uh, one year after having the child um, when their partner was eligible for paternity leave. Um, and this is mostly because fewer moms were taking unpaid leave or they were taking shorter unpaid leave and instead they were going to work uh, we're going back to work part-time. 
So it seems like the paternity leave extensions did promote uh, more egalitarian roles both in the household and outside, even though the effects, uh, I mean, the average effects were relatively small because they were concentrated on a subset of families that were more affected. Yes. How much do you trust the time use data? I mean, that's the best data that we have for measuring contribution to contributions to home production. Like, for example, in some time use surveys, a man will say, hey, I do 50%, and the woman will say, no, that, you know, I do everything. You know, yes. sometimes there's a discrepancy. This is true. We do between find these and... discrepancies. Uh, yeah, everyone thinks, everyone mm. reports that they do more. In yes. The, uh, yes, we do see the, these discrepancies. We have done uh, other surveys um, more recently asking couples how they're sharing housework. And it's true that typically men, when it's men re replying, they will say that they do more compared with when you ask women. But still, you see, you know, these types okay. of effects. Okay. Um, so even women will admit that men are doing more after yes. the paternal leave. Okay, yes. right, all right, you've convinced me there. Okay, so then you also tried to see if there are any intergenerational effects. Can you tell me about that? Right, so, oh, but I didn't tell yes. you about the fertility effects. Oh, yes, yes, okay. yes, yes. So yes. initially we looked at these effects on, uh, you know, gender roles and sharing of uh, housework and so on. And uh, sort of as, uh, as an afterthought, we also looked at potential impacts on, on fertility. So we figured you're giving families more resources, mm -hmm. you're making it easier for them to, to combine uh, work and children, so perhaps more families are going to have children. And what we found was that families where the father was eligible for the new paternity leave, they were less likely to go on and have another child compared with families who had a child right before the introduction of paternity leave. So actually, paternity leave somehow was um, reducing subsequent fertility for these couples. And this was something that uh, was persistent. So some couples had children later relative to our control group, and some families actually stopped having children altogether. So this was something unexpected, which we have explored later in terms of uh, mechanisms. And um, right now, if you ask me, I think the... The reason for this unexpected effect on fertility is, is actually it's the same mechanism that is driving the earlier effects that I described. It's just that paternity leave is making some families switch from a situation where they would have specialized much more in terms of the wife or the mother mm -hmm. doing more childcare and housework and the father working more in the market to a situation where they're specializing less. Uh, they're both doing you know work outside the home and sharing childcare and housework. And in, in such families, it's just that optimal fertility in a way or the total number of children is perhaps going to be lower uh, just because, you know, women are more attached in the labor force, um, men are more involved with the children they already have, so they may be willing to invest more in, you know, quality rather than quantity. So it's just that the, these less specialized types of households want fewer children. Uh, okay, here's a question. How, how big of a difference is it to fertility? No, it's small. It's small, actually. It's not, it's not a large effect. Um, like, in terms, like... Like, maybe a 4% reduction in... Oh, it's in, tiny? Yes. So oh, so we don't... So it's not, nothing like we need to worry that paternity leave is going to reduce fertility no, in a no, discernible no, way? No, I don't think so. No, so we shouldn't blame low fertility no. on paternity leave? <laughs> no, definitely not. Okay, okay. No. So this is very martial. Okay, okay. Question. <laughs> okay, right now let's move to the kids, the impact yes. on the kids. Uh, okay, yes. So... Uh, right, so what we know is that in these households affected by paternity leave, uh, gender roles 
were less pronounced in terms of uh, you know less stereotypical uh, behaviors of uh, these mothers and fathers. So what we wanted to know was um, what about the children, because the effects that I was describing on uh, housework and childcare time for fathers or, or labor supply for mothers, they're also small mm-hmm. on average. So it's we're not you know uh, it's not like the gender gap in uh, mm-hmm. in uh, work hours or in home production is, is going away or anything. It's a very small effect. Um, but, you know, if we think that people's behaviors as adults, when making decisions about um, specialization, about working in the market, about working uh, at home, if we think those decisions are related to your values, your attitudes, and those attitudes are perhaps something that uh, you grow up with. Yes, in terms yes, of, of course. What you see at home, yes. the behaviors that you observe when you're growing up. Then we thought maybe the children who saw their fathers being persistently more involved in childcare and housework and their mothers working a bit more, perhaps they're going to have more egalitarian views you know, throughout their lives. So what we did was we, we surveyed uh, 12-year-old children, 12, 13-year-old children, when they were in, um, I guess, middle school or yes. high school? Yeah, when they were yeah, in school. Um, and these cohorts of children born in 2006 and 2007, some of them were exposed to paternity leave and some were not, depending on their exact date of birth, yes. within, even within the same classroom. Some of these children had dads who were eligible for paternity leave and some didn't. So we did a range of things to elicit their attitudes about uh, gender roles. For example, I mean, first of all, we asked them about their parents, you know, who does what at home, uh, who helps you with homework, who uh, talks to you. So a range of... Uh, um, Parental behaviors. We also asked the children about their own contributions to to household chores, you know, like cleaning, cooking, shopping, a range of things. And then we tried to elicit their attitudes. So we asked them whether they agreed or not with different statements related to gender roles, like, you know, should both men and women contribute to household income and so on? Should uh, mothers with small children uh, work? Uh, we also asked them... Uh, not just whether they agree or disagree, but what is what do you think is the best way for families with young children to organize uh, family life? Should both parents work? Should uh, one of them stay at home and so on? And finally, we also had them play incentivized games where they had to guess what their classmates thought about uh, these things, right? About is it socially acceptable for a father to stay home full time to take care of a small child? Is it uh, socially acceptable for a mother to work full time? Okay, and what we found was that uh, in these different dimensions that we could measure, um, we did find that children whose dads were eligible for a paternity leave when they were born mm-hmm. uh, reported um, more gender egalitarian attitudes and uh, also sort of coordinated on more gender egalitarian views when asked about uh, what other peers. people think. Yes. So not only were they more egalitarian in terms of what they thought uh, parents should do, but they also expected their classmates to be more egalitarian, which we thought was interesting. And this was both the case regarding fathers' behaviors. So, you know, it's okay for fathers to to not work full-time when they have small children, but also about mothers' behaviors, uh, even though, you know, the, the policy was focusing on, on fathers'. So to us, this um, this was very interesting because remember we're talking about a policy which introduced two weeks yes. of uh, paid paternity leave. So the fact that we could detect, um, you know, and here the, the effect is huge. 
Here, the effect is large. It's, it's really, really big. So it's it's uh, super, like super 20 big. 20% of a standard yeah. deviation. Yes. It's massive. It's massive. And I think what's interesting in this, going far beyond gender, but to thinking about child development per se, is like we often think, you know, there are several mechanisms that shape people's personality. One is your domestic environment, your home environment, and also your peer group. Your peer group can have a huge role. But here what you're showing is even within the peer group, your home environment really, really matters, even in terms of your expectations of your peers so your expectation of your peers yeah. isn't just shaped by the peers you're around like and what you can see people doing but if you're in a home where it's so normal for men to share then you in turn expect your peers yeah. to yeah, be much more egalitarian yes. yeah that apparently yeah kids whatever they see at home they interpret it as yes normal. normal yes right? people tend so, to do that they always yeah. think whatever their arrangement is normal yeah, we they generalize from their own yeah, situation we weren't sure if we yes. would find this but 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 yeah indeed. I mean, and i think it's so important for gender to distinguish between our own ideas of what is right and wrong and our perceptions of what we think is widely approved because if you yourself as a man think that other people will criticize you you can be shyer to step out so i think it's amazing that you did that i think it's super awesome So that was, uh, I think, an amazing study, you know, would suggesting, you know, intergenerational transmission of gender equality. Now, continuing on that theme, while you can have intergenerational transmission of gender equality, you can also have intergenerational transmission of gender inequality. And right. you show this through your paper on migrants. Right. Yes. So in this uh, other paper, we were, again, interested in, in thinking about um, about the, how norms are transmitted, how they are persistent. And in this case, we were interested in um, intimate partner violence, where we know the incidence, um, there is a lot across uh, settings, across countries, and we wanted to understand the role of culture uh, in terms of uh, the incidence of domestic mm. violence. So what we did was we used data from, uh, this is a data set on, on gender violence at the European level, so a multi-country data set with very detailed questions about experience of uh, violence and gender violence we focused on intimate partner violence mm -hmm. and um, so the way that we thought about this was trying to so if you look across countries in Europe the the reported so the level of reporting varies a lot across countries uh, but of course when the levels of are so different it's hard to tell what's a real differences in incidence versus uh, differences in reporting and sensitivity yes exactly so we wanted to focus you know within country yes people yes. who are living in the same environment yes. uh, but who have different cultural backgrounds mm. um, so what we did was to we got access to confidential data on exact country of birth for respondents so that we had, uh, this is all women, by the way, in the survey. Mm. So we had women coming from, from a range of different countries. Uh, maybe we could identify around 40 different mm. uh, countries of origin. And then what we did was to link uh, measures of gender equality in the source country of these women. These are women who were first or second generation mm -hmm. immigrants living in Europe. So we linked measures of gender equality in their source countries to their reported uh, Victimization, so they reported um, incidents of uh, domestic violence. Uh, we looked at both physical violence and uh, sexual violence. We didn't include psychological uh, mm. violence because this was more subject to different yes. interpretations for people with different cultural mm. backgrounds. Um, anyway, so what we found was within countries, so for women living in the same country in Europe, Uh, women coming from more gender unequal countries reported significantly higher levels of How big was the difference? Um, the difference was, I think, not small. Um, I can't give you a number right now. 
but we were, yeah, and this was something that survived controlling for other factors related to the country of origin. So it's not about country of origins, um, per capita GDP. It's something that correlates uh, strongly with uh, measures of gender equality yes. in the source country. What I recall, and I, I can self-edit this later, or I would, um, is that the size of the difference that you found was bigger than the difference of being more educated. Like, I, I, I recall, I was quite surprised by how big it was. Here is a question for you, though. Do you find that the effect of migrant origin varies by country? Like, is it that in... Okay, so, for example... France has a very different policy towards immigration and cultural diversity to, to say England. Mm. Do you know, did you see any difference around the models? Like for example, where you have, for example, in Turkey, you might find migrant enclaves of Turkish people living in a specific enclave, whereas in other places you might find that people are more dispersed. Or for example, in some countries, a large part of the Turkish diaspora voted for Erdogan. And in other countries, like in, in Germany, the, the Turkish diaspora voted for Erdogan in England they did not mm -hmm. they voted for the opposition do you see that there is because I would find that an interesting question in terms of how the cut the host country and their policies and their assimilation thing might shape yeah. Yeah, or uh... or here's another question for you does the size of the immigrant community matter so for example if you are say as a group of Syrians and you are all living in a big community of Syrians and that is your only community you may stay locked into that community partly because of precarity that you need each other to survive you need mm -hmm. each other's support and you don't assimilate much with a dominant culture whereas suppose maybe you're Indians also from a patriarchal culture but you might be a smaller percentage and then you assimilate more I wonder is there any diversity yeah. yeah so these are two very interesting questions which I think we got uh, when we presented the paper around these two hypotheses mm -hmm. so one is the effect that we find is it common to all destination countries mm. or are certain countries mm -hmm. uh, you know more so do you see this difference um, being larger in specific destination countries versus others and then the second question because like for example Sweden Sweden at the moment has a uh, I read a latent class analysis of the perpetrators of gender-based violence and a large part of them are from the Middle East. And you might wonder, is that because of the Swedish way of handling criminality or high trust society or you know, a specific kind of criminal justice system that is more lax, that enables all these things, things to go on? Or for example, in England, where we've had uh, horrific cases of Pakistani men grooming young girls and for a long period of time the administration just turned a blind eye to it they didn't address it they didn't take it seriously because there were worries about feeding into Islamophobia mm -hmm. and feeding into xenophobia so there are some country governments that have taken specific yes. responses to violence which can enable a culture of impunity like in Rutherford these things existed for like 15 years because our government did nothing etc yes, et so, yeah this is um, yeah this is of course a very interesting question so we couldn't answer it with the mm -hmm. data that we were using in this paper because this is a survey that had like a thousand interviews okay. per source country and most of them were native women so we're talking you know maybe 100 200 uh, migrant women per country so we couldn't do a lot of heterogeneity in that direction i think in order to do that what we could do and maybe should do is to to look at you know some of these source countries uh, destination countries where there are large surveys, uh, like in Spain, for example, we have large surveys uh, asking about uh, gender violence. And um, so we could you know, select several countries that have high quality, large size surveys and uh, try to explore this heterogeneity. 
Uh, although even if we find different effects across different countries, it would be hard to attribute them to any specific yes, of policy course. differences. But I'd like to know, you know, which you which European governments have been most effective in disrupting that cycle. Right, but it's also true that the selection of immigrants into different yes, countries yes, might of be course. very different, right? So different of course. types of, as you said, Turkish immigrants. Yes, working class uh, people uh, go into uh, Turkey. But yeah, I, I'm I'm very much interested in these questions. But we with the research that we that we published on this, on yes. this topic, we, we weren't able to, to answer Do that. you have an impression of which country you think is doing better with tackling gender-based violence? I mean, Spain has been doing a lot of work in this direction um, since the, I guess, mid-2000s or so. Uh, so a lot of attention and resources that are devoted to, to gender-based violence. Um, how effective they are is hard to say because whenever you devote more resources and the topic becomes more visible, you also get a lot more reporting of cases. So, for example, the specialized courts dealing with domestic violence have seen you know a surge in cases, mm. which I'm you know. Uh, it could be a good thing. It could be women's exactly. confidence in it the could judicial be that system. There is yes. more reporting because now uh, things are being done about it. Um, but yes, that's. Um, the effectiveness of specific policies on actual incidents and, and also in terms of prevention is something that uh, people are starting to look is at. Is there any way we could get around that? For example, looking at A&E data. Looking at? A&E, accident and emergency data. Right. Like, yes, could yes. you triangulate it? Yes, in it? So like, for example, for, let me give you an example. In all countries, as you know better than me, domestic violence surged during COVID. But in South Africa, it actually went down. And that seems to have coincided with the ban in alcohol. And it's not only that we know from surveys that women themselves reported, but there were fewer admissions to the hospitals of women complaining of broken bones, exactly. So it's like we can triangulate bones, mm. And people's, you know, right. surveys exactly, you know, bones are a great indicator. This is, yeah, this is always an important issue with uh, topics related to, you know, when you're interested in health outcomes or uh, crime outcomes, yes. where you have, you know, the data that you have come from either reporting or very extreme cases. You yes. know, like in the case of domestic violence, you could, cut, you could have calls to hotlines or calls to the police or you could have homicides or actual mm, uh, arrests, mm, mm, so mm. either extreme cases or, or reporting in the same way. If you want to measure it from the health side, side you could go to hospital records and then yes. you can identify sort of the, types, the types of diagnosis that you think could be linked to. Um, yeah, so I think we, we need to have a combination of all these different ways of measuring it in order to be able to separate um, real incidents from changes in detection or changes mm. in, in reporting. But yeah, people are 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 working on this. So mm. like an example, as you said, is during COVID, um, in many countries, people identified this surge in, for example, calls to, to hotlines. Yes. Um, but then, yes, I think um, police records and hospital records are needed to understand whether this is actual incidents or not. Okay, now here is the next turn to another paper, which is super fascinating, on fertility. And so you have this argument that across Europe, women have become much more egalitarian and they expect men to share more household chores, but we don't see so much of a steep incline in male agreement. Uh, right. Tell me about this. So this is a, this is a working paper, uh -huh. so uh, we're still working on this, but we've started presenting it at conferences this conference season. So this paper is called Are Men's Attitudes um, Keeping Down Fertility and Female Labor Force Participation in Europe? 
And here, essentially, what we document is, as you said, an increasing divergence in attitudes between men and women in Europe. So this is uh, looking across a range mm. of European countries. And the types of attitudes that we have in mind here are attitudes regarding um, the sharing of domestic work, so the sharing of childcare and housework. So basically what we knew before regarding um, attitudes in Europe and in other countries is that men's and women's attitudes usually go together. So they're very strongly correlated across countries. So some yes. countries are more conservative, yes. some countries are more egalitarian, mm -hmm. but you know, men and women typically uh, tend to pretty much agree. We also know that over time, younger cohorts have become, become more progressive in the sense, for example, that they are much more supportive of uh, women or women with children working for pay, uh, thinking that both men and women should contribute to, to household income. And thirdly, we also know that we also knew, I mean, that uh, across most countries, women are a little bit more pro-gender uh, equality than men. So, you know, uh, if we think about questions like the ones I just described, women are a bit more egalitarian, but men mm. and women sort of go together and younger cohorts are, are more progressive. Now, what, uh, we are, what we are trying to document in this paper is that there is a another subset of um, variables capturing attitudes where we actually, the correlation, where we find that the correlation is not as strong. And in fact, there's a growing divergence in terms of attitudes between men and women as we look at younger and younger cohorts. And these are questions that ask about uh, whether, essentially, whether men should contribute or should share home production, you know, childcare activities, uh, household chores. When you ask um, younger cohorts of women, uh, younger women more and more say that, for example, that sharing housework is very important for a successful marriage. Uh, but when you ask men, you actually see not so much of a trend. So men are, you know, are less, much less inclined than women to report that sharing housework is uh, important for a successful marriage. So first of all, we document um, you know, this mm -hmm. divergence mm -hmm. in attitudes. And secondly, we correlate this, the magnitude of this divergence across countries with uh, several outcomes of, you know, related to both uh, gender equality and, uh, and fertility. So we look at the fertility rates, marriage rates, and also female women employment rates. And what we find is um, a strong correlation between the degree of this divergence in attitudes between men and women and um, both fertility rates and female employment rates a bit weaker with marriage in the direction of countries with this where this divergence is larger um, have lower fertility rates and also lower female employment rates also a little bit lower marriage rates so here's a question for you how much of the total european variation in fertility can be explained by a variation in attitudes this is something that uh, that we're trying to to quantify right now. I don't have a number for you. Uh, we're not explaining uh, levels in fertility. We're explaining trends. Uh -huh. So right, we're we're trying to understand in a way is so fertility rates fell a lot uh, in many European countries in the let's say second half of the twentieth century in a period where also female employment rates were growing. So we're not explaining that part of the variation. The you know the large increase in and female employment and the large drop in fertility, we're more interested in explaining why now in the 2000s, fertility rates are still not growing, they're persistently low, and also actually uh, gender gaps in labor market outcomes have stagnated. So mm -hmm. they, they, you know, they're, still, they're still large and they're not, 
going down any further. So what we have in mind, the model that, that we have in, in mind is a model where, um, so um, both men and women are, um, so both men and, and women, um, so it's the gap between women's expectation. When women's expectations are so much higher than men's, then women are getting much more disappointed and they're having fewer children. So now that women's labor market opportunities have improved a lot compared yes. with, uh, right. I don't know, right. say the 1960s or something, women want to work for pay because working for pay gives you control over yes. resources, yes, yes. as we know. So both men and women want to work for pay. But there is a social norm that... Uh, childcare and housework uh, should be women's responsibility. Now, women seem to be growing out of this uh, right. social norm, right. but not men, which is not surprising because, uh, you know, for, for men, of course, it's more convenient to, to keep the, the social norm, yes. to continue uh, working full-time and, uh, and having women uh, do both uh, yes. work for pay and uh, home production. Uh, so in a way, it's not surprising that there's this divergence in attitudes where women are demanding uh, more sharing and men are I mean, there are stories that men are resisting um, because you know they both want to enjoy the home production yes. the, the children um, but uh, they would both prefer if the other partner did more so so as a result you know so something has to give so you have fewer children um, and or women working less than they would otherwise and or People marrying less because of this mismatch in yes. preferences over over. Why get a husband if he's just going to be a burden? Like I said, something has to give. Yes. So. so, but okay. So let me let me introduce a line of questioning, which is maybe not just about this paper per se, but about cross country regressions in general. So what I found super interesting is you very kindly provided me with the country level data. And so, you know, I like to look at the country level data because I'm not an economist. You know, I'm not interested in these correlations. Well, I'm not. I, I think that, yes, the correlations are useful, but I want to look at each country and think, OK, does that story make sense with based on what I know about that country? So, for example, when I look at Finland, I see this divergence in attitudes. When I look at uh, Italy, you show a divergence in it attitudes. And that's consistent with those two countries having rapid falling fertility so that fits the bill but there are also many countries that have low fertility where there is no divergence at all like germany for example and the other thing that i found uh and also spain there is very there is a small divergence the other thing that i found troubling with this method it's like earlier you and I were talking about how in Spain, because there's been lots of, you know, feminism in the media, men may amp up their feminist credentials. So on, in your data, for the country level data on, you know, lots of Spanish men, I think 70% of them say just like Swedish men, you know, we need to do the housework. But then if we look at um, data on time use for how much housework Spanish men actually do, <laughs> that gap is actually much larger than, say, Swedish men. For mm -hmm. Swedish men, the gap between men and women in what they actually do is pretty small. So in terms of attitudes, 70% of Swedish men say, yes, we should do housework. And in time use, they're the most progressive in Europe, right? But in Spain, it's slightly different from that pattern because you have lots of men ex mm -hmm. endorsing it, but in terms of time use, there's yeah. still this big gap. <laughs> and so I wonder... 
how much, especially in countries where feminism, like Spain, where feminism is just at the forefront of public conversations, you may get this social desirability bias. Yes, yes. So this is, of course, uh, very interesting, these points that you're raising. One point that you're raising is uh, the gap between what you say you want and what you actually mm -hmm. do. So the gap between attitudes and, and actions. And this is, of course, something that we want to explore more. And of course, you know, what you end up doing is also the result of, uh, you know, whether you end up getting married or not, having children or not, uh, working uh, for pay or not. Uh, so we were interested in attitudes per se and, and how they might drive actual outcomes. But of course, it would be useful to also show in parallel how time use and in particular men's contribution to household work, how it's been evolving over time. And the other point that I think you're raising, which is also very interesting, is that we're paying attention in this paper to the divergence or to the difference in views between men and women. But as I said at the beginning, what's striking, and when I show the data in conferences, this is yeah. something that came up, what's striking is how actually how similar the levels are for men and women across countries. You talk about Germany, for yeah. example, which is a, you know, a, one of the more conservative yes. countries within Europe. It's not just men, it's men and women yes, yes, who are yes. very conservative. Young, men and women in uh, Germany, they're super conservative. Yeah, it's like only 30% right. or 25% of them say that they should share the chores. Like women are fine with patriarchy. Right, exactly. So that's also, I mean, as interesting as the divergence is to me between men and women, mm. it's also very interesting mm. to understand why in some countries uh, women and men are so in line. And also, as you said, in Spain, it's uh, been the other way around where men... Uh, and women are becoming uh, more and more progressive in this uh, direction. Um, yeah, so it is striking how similar the levels are for men and women across countries. Um, I bet, I think it would be interesting with your paper if, you, if it was possible to include a larger sample of countries. Because, for example, I think for the most part, Western Europe has a relatively small gender gap. Whereas if we looked at East Asia, for example, Korean women have become much more egalitarian, much more liberal, where there's less change actually, among men. Korea, In Latin America, yeah. men so Korea also. is where this project started. Actually. Oh, really? She's my co-author, she, she, she lived in Korea. Oh, okay. And she was very interested in uh, gender-related oh, okay. issues in Korea. So the first figure I show with this divergence Um, it was in in Korea, where this when where men are apparently mostly very conservative, yes. while women not so much. And actually, she was interested in um, imported brides, essentially. So men marrying women from surrounding Asian countries, yes. where uh, where it's easier to find a traditional wife, let's say. So this was originally what motivated us to start looking at other countries where you see this, this divergence in the younger courts. But it's true. This is something that you see in some countries, not others, even in, in Asia, in some countries. And but also in like Argentina, Chile, for example, you have women who've become much more egalitarian, go into feminist marches, but still an issue of machismo. And many of these women, you know, don't want to marry these guys who may still be machismo. So it feeds into both fertility and marriage. Even I would say that I would say this, the divergence would be much bigger in these non-European countries. Mm, yes, you're right. So we, yeah, we decided to focus on on Europe just because, well, precisely because we thought we thought it was a subset of countries that had a lot of things in common, yes, so yes. where we could focus yes, on yes. this variation. But yes, I, of course, I think you're right, and I would also be very interested in looking at other regions. It's just that, yeah, we would like to have data that are very comparable. Yes. Okay, but here's another question. When we're thinking about cross-country regressions, it sort of implies, you know, if a country had more convergence in attitudes 
then fertility might go up. Like that is the implication. Now, clearly for Germany, where there is already convergence, that's not going to make a difference. But like, do, is that how you read it? That, you know, if only there was more of a convergence yeah. in Finland or in Italy... Yes, so ideally what I would like to do is to perhaps focusing on one specific country or I'd like to do would be to identify some shock that would affect, um, say, men's attitudes mm, mm. and be able to trace the link, the causal link from attitudes to these outcomes, you know, in marriage market related, fertility related, labor market related. The problem is uh, this is, uh, yeah, we haven't found... Um, any source of variation and attitudes mm. that we can argue is, um, you know, is exogenous to other yes. factors that are affecting the outcomes that we're interested in. But yes, ideally, of course, what we would, what we want to do is to trace a, a causal link such that if you were to somehow change attitudes, yeah. uh, for example, make men's attitudes more in line with women's increasing demand for sharing housework and childcare, then you would expect to see subsequently. Um, higher marriage rates, higher fertility rates, and uh, can I ask an annoying question? So, what about endogeneity? Because when I look at the data, I see that there are some countries that, as we said, have total convergence, and some have divergence. So, Finland and Italy are the two ones that really stand out for this growing divergence. What could be causing that? Like, why is it that Italian women are increasingly thinking of equality, but not Italian men? Yes, yes, like, yes. Italy, for example, is one of the more religious countries in Europe. It also has, you know, a more traditional maternalist ideology and a far weaker feminist movement. But Germany also has a weak feminist movement. You know, if we look at UGRAF data in terms of percentage of people who identify as feminists, it's low in Italy and Germany. So why should we see divergence in Italy, but not Germany? Yeah, this is the question, right? Exactly. So I'm saying this variation has effects on a range of outcomes, but I don't know what is driving the, the variation mm. in, in attitudes. Um, so yeah, your guess is as, as good as mine. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, you're right. This is what, uh, what we want to be thinking about. Um, and I think the case of Germany is particularly interesting. Yes. Versus say, Italy or... Yes, or why Spain. are German because women so Spain, content yeah, with then, patriarchy? You know, Italian women, they, yeah, their labor market opportunities have improved a lot, so it makes sense that they want to work more in the market and they want to share more at home, and it also makes sense that men you know, are, are not uh, following along. But why are German women not demanding more participation from, from men at home? But I think w- w- one way you might uh, explain the German situation is with the uh, tax system, that there is an incentive for women to work less or to work part-time. And so you specialize in home production and you might enjoy that, right? Women enjoy and provide, in, d- derive self-fulfillment and care and show love through being a loving wife with a part-time job. And Germany has a strong labor market where men can get a decent job for the most part. And so you might have a very happy situation. Like women may be perfectly content with their husbands yeah, earning more. the question is why aren't men also deriving the same satisfaction from, you know, so why do you see a specialization only coming from the women's side when women in Germany can also find uh, good jobs, right? Ah, that but maybe, the they, maybe they're just accustomed to it. So, you know, right. so lots yeah. of their mothers so have worked 
part-time. Lots of women have worked part-time. The job situation is good. You know, a man can earn a decent salary. You know, Germany must be one of the... Is, is it one of the richest countries in yes. Europe? Right? So a man is being able to provide for his family. And, you know, I think, for example, in America, where the overwhelming majority of women are working full-time, that can be incredibly stressful and uh, difficult to do full-time work and all that caregiving. Whereas in Germany, if women are getting used to doing part-time work, that's what they've always so known. So you think it's basically... An Income effect. So the social norm is everywhere that women are doing childcare, but do you think in Germany because they're rich it's, enough that it's a better situation? Why, why, why not enjoy you know working part time and spending time with their kids? Some women love being mothers, making cakes. Well, what about in Finland though? Because in Finland, uh, okay, well, yes. Why do you see that divergence in Finland? Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, it. It's a good question. So Finland is already already has very high rates of female labor force participation. Already has very high rates of female representation. So why have women, you know, become more radicalized than men? Haven't caught up. I don't have a Finnish theory. Yeah, I don't have a Finnish theory. <laughs> I mean, they're all. I mean, the Finnish. Yes, I would be only speculating, so I'll restrain myself. Yes, exactly. Same. But I think. <laughs> I think. I think. Like, these are the right questions. But I think. I think this is super about, important yes. because I think when we do cross national regressions, they're super interesting but the way that we can improve our analysis is thinking okay well what's going on in this country what's going on in that country and the more that we sort of refine our understanding over the more that we build our theory from the bottom up yes. from knowledge of each country the more we can improve our, our overall story yes we can agree on that so yes i think these examples that you're talking about like finland italy and germany mm. those are some of the cases that we want to be thinking more about to try to understand where the where this divergence is coming from or where it's not coming from mm. um yes so thank you very much but the that. other thing here here's another interesting thing so uh michelle uh, one of the books i really love is by michelle gelfand called rule makers and rule breakers and she characterizes both germany and italy as quite tight rule band cultures like so there are strict rules about eating carbonara or whatever in Italy. But Germany is also quite, quite rule-bound and there are strict ideas. But the interesting thing to me is that even though those are both tight cultures, you still see this divergence and growing feminism in Italy, but not Germany. And I don't know why that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I mean, the, what you said got me thinking about, you know, what's life like for a housewife in Germany versus a housewife in Italy? Italy. And maybe the life for a housewife or a you know, full-time mom in Germany is much better than the life of a full-time mom in But Italy. Italy, you know, the, the labor market is so much more precarious. So when I was interviewing women in Sardinia, right, it's a really precarious situation. It's much harder to get a job. And for that reason, many women said that they didn't want to have a child because it's so much more of an economic hit. Whereas in Germany, if you think that you, if you can be more confident in your husband's economic situation, then you might feel more comfortable in specializing because he's going to stick around and take care of you. Whereas in Italy, all that onus and all that ri risk is on you, you know, so I, I think I think the economic factor could play into it, but that's just sure. But anyway, so, so let me summarize. This is Libertad Gonzalez, and she has done this amazing work on the intergenerational transmission of norms, both for equality and for inequality and violence, and exploring all these things through surveys, through a lab in the field, experiments, you know, massively enhancing our knowledge of everything related to gender. So Libertad, this was a total pleasure. Thank you for sharing with us. Thank you so much, Alice. It was, it was my pleasure. Awesome, thank you.